Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we are going to read from verse 18 to verse 38. Verse 18. While Jesus spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay your hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who was diseased with an issue of blood for twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Go away, for the maid is not dead, but sleeps. And they laughed at him to scorn. But when the people were put forth, he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all the land. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, According to your faith, be it done unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no one know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a mute man, possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And multitudes marveled, saying, It has never before been seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out devils through the prince of devils. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and inspiring the disciple of Jesus, Matthew, to write this, to record this for our instruction and benefit, and for us to look at Jesus and to learn about who he is. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would take away all the distractions and that you would cause us to be able to see Jesus Christ and to see how amazing he is and how amazing you are 
as we look at him. May we truly see what you want us to see this morning, each one. Speak to each one individually, Lord. By your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever heard of the saying, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Ever heard of that saying before? You know who said that? Most, many people don't know, but um, I didn't know. I had to look it up. Lord Acton. He was a British historian, politician, and writer. And he was a Roman Catholic. And what's interesting, and I didn't know this either, but I think many people don't know that that saying, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, was actually made in reference to papal infallibility. Interesting. Papal infallibility. That is, uh, that the Pope is infallible when he makes decrees. The Roman Catholic Pope is infallible. Whatever he says is the word of God. He can't make an error um, when he speaks for God. What's called ex cathedra. And uh, that doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church was actually first declared in 1869 and 1870 at the First Vatican Council. That's not been a very old doctrine. It's actually quite recent that Roman Catholics believe that the Pope's word is infallible. And this Roman Catholic, Lord Acton, uh, in reference to this, in opposition to that decree, in opposition to that doctrine at the First Vatican, Vatican Council, wrote that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It was a warning. He said, this is not good. You don't want to give man power like that, where he can speak and it's infallible. Uh, you don't want to give the Pope that, because that will corrupt the Pope. That will corrupt men, as power tends to do. He didn't say power has to corrupt, but it tends to corrupt. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings? Are you familiar with the, the books and the movies? Right? So what happens when uh, there's, what does it say in the Lord of the Rings? What's the Tolkien's theme is there's one ring to rule them all, right? So once you possess this one ring, you have the power over everything else. And what happens when certain people in the Lord of the Rings gets a hold of this power? Really nice guys. What happens to them? <laughs> they go crazy. They turn into guys like Gollum, right? One ring to rule them all. The Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the point is that men are susceptible to being corrupt when they are given power. Now, it's interesting in the Lord of the Rings that the, the elves aren't, right? The noble elves can possess the ring and they don't get corrupted either. I think Tolkien was touching upon something that was biblical. He was touching upon a biblical truth about men being corrupted by power. The word power means to be able if you have power, then you are able. You have ability. If you have the ability to do something, it's the same as saying you have the power to do something. And if you don't have the ability to do something, it's the same as saying you don't have the power to do something. The Latin word is potentia, where we get the word potent, and where we get the word potential, which is kind of interesting. A... Uh, a comment I'll make on uh, the predominant society here is that uh, the LDS community here thinks that they have the potential to become gods, right? So in a sense, that's saying that I am able to become a god 
and have absolute power. As Christians, we don't believe we have the potential to become gods, right? We don't have that power. We think that would probably corrupt us. So Acton did not say power corrupts, but it tends to corrupt. Power doesn't have to corrupt. If there is, there's, there's ways to prevent power from corrupting people, both negative and positive. Power can be counterbalanced negatively by retribution. You might have the ability to do something, but you're not going to do it because if you do it, you'll get retribution, right? How many of you have the ability to rob a bank, steal something, shoplift, kill somebody? Do you have the ability to do that, right? We are often prevented from doing those things because we fear retribution, right? There's a negative consequence if I do that. So our power can be checked negatively, but also positively. Power can also be checked by love, right? Suppose you can get away with a murder. Suppose you can get away with it. doesn't mean you're going to do it if you have a positive reason not to, which is love. Now in Matthew chapter 4, turn with me there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 Matthew 4.23 marks the beginning of a, a large section in the book of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. And that section, we see the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus. Now, Matthew 4.23 compresses it. So, in 23, it says, Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. That is a compressed statement. And from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 9, where we are this morning, uh, Matthew is unpackaging the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus. And the end of this section is marked, flip back with me to chapter 9, in verse 35. So Matthew 9, verse 35, what does it say? It's interesting, it says basically the exact same thing that it says in 423. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So between those two markers, we have this statement being unpacked. And this marker, 935, doesn't just end the section, but it transitions us into the next section of Jesus sending forth his disciples, as we read disciples to lift up their eyes because the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. You'll notice in chapter 10, he's now going to send his disciples out to do the exact same thing, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. So we have an unpackaging of his healing and teaching ministry. What do we see? The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching the people about the law, about the Pharisees, his teaching is in contrast with the Pharisees. It's in opposition with the Pharisees. He's teaching them that they need to have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees if they're going to enter into the kingdom of God. And yet, as difficult as that sounds to the people, and as difficult as it should sound to us, you need to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. And according to the law, if you even look with lust, you're committed, uh, uh, guilty of adultery. If you even have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you don't go the extra mile, you're not loving your neighbor. You're not, you're not being like God. And the law requires you to be like God, to be perfect as God is perfect. 
And so if you don't have a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And while that sounds like bad news, because we realize, well, if that's the standard, I'm not going to make it, the teaching ministry of Jesus is described as good news. Really interesting, huh? It's good news that uh, Jesus has to bring to you, even though he teaches that the standard of the law is absolute perfection. So an interesting dynamic in the teaching ministry of Jesus. What we also see is his miracles. We saw Jesus cleanse a leper. That's just typical of probably many lepers that he cleansed. He healed the, servant, the, the centurion's servant with a word from a distance. He didn't even have to go. He just said the word, and the centurion's servant was healed. We see Jesus commanding the wind and the seas, and the wind and the seas obey Jesus. We see Jesus, with one word, cast out thousands of demons out of two men. That is amazing power, is it not? With one word, casting out thousands of demons. Most of us would tremble in the presence of one demon. We talked about how everyone else would have been afraid of those guys, and Jesus wasn't afraid. They were afraid of Jesus. And then, in the beginning of chapter 9, as we looked at last week, we see Jesus healing a lame man in the presence of all these witnesses. And he says, as proof that I have the power to forgive sins, because what's easier, to forgive sin or to heal the lame man? Well, they're both humanly impossible. Jesus raises this lame man up. And now, at the beginning of the section we read here, Matthew really reaches a climactic note. Because so far, we've had healings of lepers, raising of the lame, and for the first time in Matthew's record, we have Jesus raising the dead. This is, a clim- this is how he finishes. This is a climactic note in the ministry of Jesus. Raising the dead. The power of Christ to raise the dead. Not even death itself can stop Jesus' healing ministry. Not even death itself. And if death can't stop him, what can do you know anything beyond that? If, if Jesus can raise dead people to life, what can stop him? So let's look at this. Verse 18. A ruler, of the syn- uh, a ruler comes. It doesn't say the synagogue. Noteworthy here. Matthew excludes lots of details that Mark and Luke give. Mark and Luke give us all sorts of details about this ruler. He's a ruler of the synagogue. Matthew doesn't include that. His name is Jairus. Matthew doesn't include his name. His daughter is 12 years old. Matthew doesn't include that detail. His daughter could have been 30 years old here in the story. Mark and Luke tell us the daughter was 12. That was one year shy of her, um, her uh, it's a, the female version of the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Yes. That means she's still a young girl. She's still her a young girl, just about to hit adulthood, and she's, she's dead. Imagine the horror of Jairus, this ruler's synagogue, that your little girl, who's not even an adult yet, has died. Imagine his horror. And yet he comes to Jesus in hope. And Jesus doesn't say, sorry, um, I, I can only do so much, right? This, this case is a little bit too difficult for me. 
Um, I can heal lepers. You got any of those in your family? <laughs> right? <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, I'll go. What we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is able, he's powerful to deliver us and save us and help us even in our most extreme need. There's not a need that's too difficult for Jesus to handle. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that Jesus is wonderful to help me in certain situations, but this situation is out of his hands, is out of his power? You ever felt that? The Bible tells us never feel like that. Never feel that because Jesus is able to help you in every situation. What can he not do? He can raise the dead. He can forgive your sin. There's nothing and no problem that you might have that's too difficult for Christ. Isn't that amazing? Let me just encourage you this morning, if there's anything that you feel is too difficult for Christ, that you would realize this morning and ponder and think about his amazing power to help you and to save you no matter what. Trust in him like Jairus did. Come to him and he will come and help you. Now, there's a detour here, right? As Jesus is going to Jairus' house, another thing happens which also shows us the unstoppable and amazing power of Jesus. And this is really a fascinating story once it's unpackaged. So Jesus is walking along and once again, Matthew passes over all sorts of details. What does he say in verse 20? Behold, a woman who is diseased with an issue of blood, 12 years, comes behind him and touches the hem of his garment. Now, in Mark and Luke, we have all sorts of other details about that. It tells us that this woman, also it says in all three, she had an issue of blood. That is uh, actually a disease spoken of in the book of Leviticus. It's a menstrual dysfunction. And so it actually made her ceremonially unclean. And the book of Leviticus in chapter 15 goes into detail about if, if a woman is having her, her period, she's unclean. And when she's finished with that, then she's clean and able to um, approach the tabernacle. Before that, she's not. But it goes on to say, but if there's a dysfunction and she never stops having her menstrual cycle, then uh, she's going to be perpetually unclean. And this is what happened with this woman. For 12 years, she's perpetually unclean for 12 years. And this is a desperate situation for her. She tries all the doctors, it says in Mark and Luke. She spends all of her money, it says. This wasn't something casual, right? When you have money to spend, you spend it on what's most important to you. She spent all of her money trying to be healed of this issue of blood. And it says that none of the doctors could do anything for her. Actually, it made her worse. Whatever they did made her worse. So she was in a hopeless situation. She tried man's power, and man's power had failed. She's not someone who's like, well, I could go for man's power, or I could go for God's power. I should go with God's power. She's, she has gone down the road of man's power. She has sought every possible help she could. She spent every dime that she has, and after 12 years, she's come up empty. Until Jesus comes walking by. And it's an amazing thing that she finds hope in him. 
where man's power fails, God's power is still available. And you ever wondered, why did she do what she did? Why did she come up and touch the hem of his garment? Now, in Matthew, it doesn't say that she thought within herself, uh, or it does, excuse me, 21, look. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. How come she didn't just approach Jesus face to face with all the other people in the crowds? Couldn't she have done that? Sure, she could have done that. Lots of people got healed by Jesus. She could have went face to face. She could have got in line. There would have been opportunity. But she actually wanted, and this is very important, this woman wanted the least degree of contact with Jesus. Often when we read this story, we think, because there's so many people, she was thinking to herself, um, man, I really want to get to him, but it's not likely I'm going to because there's so many crowds, so maybe I can just reach through and touch, maybe just touch him. But that's not actually how we're supposed to read this story. We're supposed to see that this woman wanted least degree of contact with Jesus. She purposely approached him from, the, from behind. She didn't want Jesus to even notice that she was healed. And you might say, well, I think you're reading too much into that. Turn to Luke chapter 8, and it says it specifically. Luke chapter 8, verse 47. This is a fascinating miracle recorded by all three synoptics because of its really its amazing nature. This is an unusual miracle because this person that got healed didn't want to be noticed. Look at Luke uh, verse 40. Chapter 8, verse 47. Jesus has been touched. The, the hem of his garment has been touched by her. She did not want to touch his body. She wanted to touch his garment. And Jesus perceives that uh, a miracle has taken place, so he stops and turns around. And in verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hid, see, <laughs> she wanted to be hid. She wanted to not be noticed. When she saw that she was not hid, she came trembling. Now she's afraid. And she falls down before him and declares unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him. And now she was immediately healed. You see, this woman, by approaching the crowds and touching Jesus, was actually doing something that violated the law. And she didn't understand that you couldn't defile Jesus, right? She wanted to be healed incognito, so she wanted to do what she's not supposed to do so that she could be healed. In the Old Covenant, in the, in the law, if someone is ceremonially unclean and they touch something that is clean, does the unclean become clean or does the clean become unclean? In the book of Haggai, they actually, uh, Haggai says, ask the priest this question. If something unclean touches something clean, what's more powerful? What neutralizes what? Right, the unclean makes the clean unclean, not the clean makes the unclean clean. Right? <laughs> so what's interesting is she, was, she had all this fear because she's saying, I'm doing something that would defile others, but I, I have no other hope. This is my only hope. Nothing else is going to work. I got to I got to approach the clean. <laughs> and 
And so she wanted the least degree of contact with Jesus. She was afraid. She thought maybe Jesus would be angry with her. The people would be angry with her. So now she's trembling before everyone. It's like, yeah, I was unclean, and I just squeezed through everybody and touched them. But I'm healed, right? You know what's amazing is that while it seemed like this woman violated the law to get to Jesus, she actually accomplished the purpose of the law by going to Jesus, didn't she? It's interesting that it seemed like she violated the law because she went against it. She said, I'm going to disregard this and just go to Jesus. But what's interesting is that's the whole purpose of the law is to show you that you're not going to be saved by this law. You're not going to be right by this law. You're going to be right by going to Jesus as a sinner. And so it is with us when we become Christians. We are not told, before you come to Jesus, you need to make sure you obey the law. You make yourself righteous, purify yourself, get rid of your sins, then now you are qualified to approach the Son of God. That's not what it says, is it? The gospel is, you are unclean, you are a sinner, you are unworthy, you are a lawbreaker, and the law does condemn you to die. In just as desperate as she, or it's worse. And in a sense, it seems like when we become Christians, it seems like we violate the law. Because what we declare is, I'm going to God even though I am a lawbreaker. And I'm seeking acceptance with God even though I'm doing it apart from the law. I'm going to believe that God will save me. And it isn't on the basis of my obedience. And this is what the non-Christian world is amazed at, doesn't understand. They say, that's violating the law. You can't just say you're accepted and righteous without obeying the commands that God gave. Seems like I violate the law. But I don't, because the law wants me to go to Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. For me to actually give up hope in it and to go to him. And what we find is an amazing thing that only happens with Christ, that the clean makes the unclean clean and not the other way around. Isn't that amazing? You notice that Jesus was not defiled by this woman or all the people that he touched? He touches them and they're clean. They come to him in filth, in uncleanness, and he in his holiness, in his power, in his saving power, makes them clean. Right. But it's weird because whenever they touched him, they became clean. How do you deny that? Right? The moment they touched, that person wasn't dirty anymore or wasn't unclean. So technically they didn't actually touch. And this is why Jesus turns to her and she's trembling and afraid. Okay, I violated the law. Yes, I did something wrong. He says, daughter, be of good comfort. Take courage. You did the right thing. You believed in me. There's nothing to be afraid of. God loves you. You're healed. Your faith has made you well. That is, the object of your faith has made you well. Your faith is what you're believing. This is not, the Bible doesn't teach positive thinking. Like, woman, if you believe that touching that statue over there would heal you, you would be healed if you touched it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Because it's the power of your faith. It's what she believed. She believed that if she touched Jesus, 
because Jesus was mighty to save and Jesus had power to heal, that she'd be healed. And so she was. And I think here, brothers and sisters, we should stop and just marvel and wonder at the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ to heal a woman who came to him not fully understanding him, afraid, seeking least contact with Jesus, and she was healed completely. It wasn't like, well, because you seek least contact, you're only healed 20%. You know, there's some progress made in your body. She was totally healed, even though she touched him with fear and hesitation and even unbelief. She had a little bit of faith. And I think this tells us something beautiful about salvation, that Jesus Christ will save even those who seek the least degree of contact with him, even those who hesitate with Jesus, even those who are afraid that, is it really true that I can just, you know, believe in him and not keep the law and I'll be saved? Well, I'm afraid that that's not true, but it's my only hope, so I'm going to try it. I don't want to get in Jesus' face. I'll just maybe touch his garment, just a little bit of faith. And they're completely saved and forgiven. You have even a little bit of faith, brothers and sisters? Are you trusting, even if your faith is hounded by doubts and hesitations, are you trusting that even though you're a sinner and a lawbreaker, that Christ is powerful to save you and will take you to heaven? Literally on his coattails, right? You think that, you think that Christ is... is is happy to take people to heaven riding on his coattails? Isn't that how we all go to heaven? He's the one who's worthy to get in. We're just like, um, what are those little things that hang onto the whales? <laughs> Barnacles, that's right. We just stick onto Jesus and go in. <laughs> He's the one who's worthy. Only by virtue of touching him are we worthy. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Savior, brothers and sisters, isn't he? That he's, he's, he would say, be of good comfort to one who's even doubtful. Really? Me, a sinner? Well, maybe. Okay, I'll put some hope in that. Yes, I'm going to hope in that. He'll save you. The power of Christ. Verse 23. So after this little interlude story, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house and he finds, it says, um, minstrels and people making noise. In the ancient world, when someone died, they would have great mourning for that person and they would even hire people to mourn professionally for the dead. And they said that everyone who dies at least should have uh, at least two flute players, that's the minstrel as a flute player, and one wailing woman, okay? Two flute players and one wailing woman, at least. Probably the, the greater the person, the more flute players you'd have and the more wailing women you'd have. So I expect many flute players and wailing women at my funeral, okay? <laughs> now, it's interesting that uh, the, the music that was played by these flute players was actually not to comfort the, uh, the mourners. Did you know that? It was not to alleviate the comfort by soothing music. It was actually to stir up lamentation. Isn't that amazing? So the music would have been very sad and horrible 
<laughs> you know, the only image that, I com that comes to my mind is you ever have a child play a recorder in school? Yeah. <laughs> and you know when they blow really hard on the recorder and it makes that horrible like sound like something really bad has happened? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I imagine them just like blasting that and it's just stirring up the emotions. Oh, something horrible has happened. Something horrible has happened. Our loved one has died. And in fact, brothers and sisters, that is, there's some truth to that, is that death is a bad thing. The, the Hebrew culture was such that they would mourn because death is not a good thing. Someone dies, it's bad. We should feel horrible about this. We should make horrible music about this. We should wail about this, and we should stir up the horrible emotions about this. A little different than the way we do funerals today, right? Of course, Paul does say, don't mourn as those who have no hope, right? Probably our culture is influenced by the New Testament. Jesus says, get everybody out of here, right? <laughs> he plugs up the <laughs> flute. <clears throat> the guy's about to make a big blow, and he grabs the flute and says, go away. She's not dead. She's asleep. And by Jesus saying she's not dead but asleep, we ought not take that that Jesus is, is ignorant of the fact she died or Jesus is ignoring the fact that she died. She died, it's true. Jesus is not making a statement, uh, a theological statement, as some people infer uh, from statements in the Bible about the dead sleeping. He's not saying here that she's in soul sleep. It's not what he's talking about. Some people think the Bible teaches because it says the dead sleep, that uh, when you die, you lose consciousness, just like when you fall asleep. And you know how when you fall asleep, you just wake up right away and you don't remember sleeping? So some people think that maybe that's how it is when you die. You die and immediately wake up because you're not conscious during the time of your death. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what the New Testament is talking about, and I don't believe that's a true teaching. But actually, the idea that the dead sleep actually comes from the Old Testament, we don't need to turn there, but verses like, awake, though, awake and sing, you that lie in the dust. And it's actually reference to the resurrection. When God says that the dead sleep, what he means is it's temporary. What he means is they're going to wake up again. They're going to rise from the dead. It's not a statement of their consciousness. It's a statement of the, the temporal nature of death and that there's hope beyond death. So he's like, why are you mourning as if there's no hope? She's sleeping, figuratively speaking. She will rise. And what did the people do? Verse 24. Can you believe it? They laughed at him to scorn. They laughed at him to scorn. You ever laughed at somebody to scorn? You're not laughing at a joke they made. You're laughing at them and scorning them. They didn't think that he made a joke. Huh, good one. They were saying, you idiot. And they laughed at him to scorn. Because what he said was humanly impossible. They did not believe beyond what was humanly possible. They didn't believe in the power of Christ. They believed in human power. What, what's able here? And so they laugh at him when he says that there could be something more than what is humanly possible. And brothers and sisters, on a side note, this world will laugh at Christians to scorn for saying that we are justified through faith without works. True or false? 
Is that a humanly impossible thing? Yes. You are considered to be righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ and not on the basis of your works and on the basis of your performance. That's something that's humanly impossible in the eyes of the non-Christian world. You can't be righteous unless you're righteous. There's no such thing as righteousness apart from righteousness. Of course, they're speaking only of their own works. Expect to be laughed at to scorn whenever you mention Christ and his power to do what is humanly impossible. And for us, let us not laugh at Jesus when he says something. When Jesus says something that seems crazy to us because it's not humanly possible or we've never seen it before, even if it sounds absurd, we ought not to laugh. And there's many things in the New Testament, there's many things in the Old Testament that God says that people laugh at that I suggest we ought not. Remember Lot's nephews? He said, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed in just a matter of minutes. And they said, what? That's ridiculous. And they thought he was joking. And they laughed at him. Well, what happened was, is Lot got out of there with his daughters and his nephews perished in Sodom and Gomorrah. People laugh about things like hell. People laugh about things like Christ coming again. People laugh at the idea that they're under the wrath of God. But Jesus taught all those things. People also laugh, though, when Jesus says, believe on me and you'll have eternal life. They say, no, that's that's too easy. It's got to be more than that. That's not possible. Christianity is a religion of believing in what is not possible with man, but what is possible with God. Amen? Well, once again, we see Christ's power over law, sin, and death, for he touches the dead body. Look at verse 25. Now, for Gentiles, not very significant. If you go to a funeral, you're going to see people touching dead bodies all the time. But that's a big Jewish no-no. You don't touch dead bodies. Uh, the The Jewish commentator David Stern wrote, this principle of Christ's power over that, that the unclean is made clean by him is exemplified even more strongly here since Yeshua himself initiates contact with what is regarded in Judaism as the primary source of all impurity, a dead body. You know in the law it says you're not to touch dead bodies or you become unclean. And Jesus comes into the room. There's a dead little girl there. He takes her by the hand and she raises up to life. There's nothing that can stop Jesus. There's nothing that can defile Jesus. There's no defilement or sin or curse or death that can prevent or resist his indomitable power. If Christ can raise the dead, then he can defeat the ultimate enemy and nothing can stop Christ. Just think about that, how powerful Jesus Christ is in every way. And as we come to the close of this section in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that it ends with opposition and an interesting contrast. Notice in verse 34, the opposition. And the contrast in verse 27. You have two radically different perspectives on Jesus. On the one hand, you have men crying out, Jesus, son of David. That means they're saying, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
We recognize the messianic signs. The lame are running and walking. Lepers are being cleansed. The blind is seeing. The deaf are hearing. These are messianic signs. You are the Messiah, son of David. Have mercy on us. And you have, on the other hand, the extreme opposite. The Pharisees saying, Jesus is not merely demon-possessed. It's worse than that. He is possessed with the chief demon. Even his enemies couldn't deny Christ's supernatural power. They didn't say, oh, he's just an illusion. It's just, uh, you know, a magic show. No, they said, yeah, he's doing it. Sure, he's doing it. We can't deny that. But it, it has to be the prince of demons by which he's casting out demons because look how easy it is for him, right? I think that's a statement of the ease of how Jesus could cast out demons. See, in the Old Testament, demons are acknowledged. But we won't go into a huge study of the demons in the Old Testament. Josephus and Philo, Jewish writers in the first century, write about demons. But the thing is, is that the casting out of demons by, by men outside of Christ, they use such bizarre methods. If you've ever read about exorcism in the ancient world, or even today, the methods are really bizarre. In the ancient world, they would blast a trumpet into a person's ear, full blast, trying to scare the demon out with the loud noise. Or they'd feed him food that was horrible so that the demon would say, I don't want to stay in this place anymore. <laughs> As opposed to Christ's authority, which was being manifested on a daily basis, would just get out, get lost, and these demons would would leave with ease. And so the Pharisee says, well, it has to be that he's the chief demon because they're all obeying him. What a perspective on Jesus. It's amazing that one of the most beautiful things can be labeled one of the most ugly things. What's even more interesting is that two blind men see what the Pharisees cannot. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Two blind men see what the Pharisees cannot. I have a friend in New Brunswick. His name is John, John Entz, good friend. And um, he was telling me this last Christmas of how he became a Christian. And he was at a, a, a Christian school. He was not a Christian. And he was really arrogant. And I think he was getting under the skin of the other Christian students because he was really pompous and arrogant, th- thinking he knew everything. And he wasn't a Christian. He was going to prove everybody wrong. And uh, there was a Christian blind boy at that school And he told me that the blind boy came up to him one day and was like, you think I'm the one who's blind, but you're the one who's really blind. (laughs) He said, that really impacted him. Here you see two blind guys see that Jesus is the son of David, even before they're physically able to see. And those who are physically able to see, the Pharisees, and who ought to know because they study the scriptures, they say, he's got a devil. Jesus will have some very, very, harsh things to say about this later on in Matthew. Now in closing, I just want to ask, in light of all this power that Christ has, and nothing can stop him, what about the statement that we read earlier, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. How come Jesus with all the power that he had, wasn't corrupt. Or for that matter, 
How come God, with all the power that he has, isn't corrupt? Who's going to punish God if he would do something that was evil? Who's going to send God to hell if he says, okay, I know right from wrong, but I'm going to choose to do wrong? Who's going to stop God? Wallace? (laughs) Spider-Man? Superman? What if he chose to be bad? How come this power doesn't corrupt God? How come it doesn't go to head? His head. One ring to rule them all. How come God hasn't turned into Gollum after all these years? Now in verse 36, I think we find the most striking thing about Jesus in all of the Gospels. You know, in all the Gospels, we see many things that Jesus does, and every now and again, we get a little window, a window not just into his deeds, but into his heart. And in verse 36, it says, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he had a job to do because he was following the plan. It actually says something much more significant than that. He wasn't just here following the plan that God gave him, following it to the letter. Jesus was moved in his soul, in his heart, with compassion. His, in the Greek, his bowels were moved inside. It wasn't, I know I should be taking care of them. It's my job. I'm being paid a lot by God. He saw the people and he had compassion on the people. He had compassion when he saw their condition and he came alongside to help. And brothers and sisters, the most marvelous statement in the Bible about God is God is love. Amen? It's the most marvelous statement about God in the Bible. God is love. That is his nature. That is why he doesn't do evil and why he doesn't think to do evil is because God is love and God is good and God is benevolent and chooses to do good because he is love. The French writer Stendhal, when talking about power corrupting, he said, it seems to me that, the only, that only love can beat it, the corruption of power. If you have love, then you can have power and not be evil. It's not retribution that prevents God from being evil. There's nobody above him. There's nobody he's accountable to. There's nobody he's going to send him to jail if he does evil. It is his love. And God is of a different nature of us. We don't have that nature. That's why when we get the, the ring, we turn sour as men. However, we can be changed by his love. We can be influenced and affected by his love so that we don't have to be corrupt either by that. Fascinating, it says here, the people were, in ex- were faint, it says in the King James. He was moved with compassion because they were faint. They fainted, and it says they were scattered abroad. But better than that, the, tra- the translation would be they, were, they fainted and were cast down. Fainted means they had no strength. They had, they had, their body had loosened. They had fainted because they lost strength. Anyone ever fainted before? You just, your muscles just go out and you have no more strength and you just plop down on the ground. So what it's saying is Jesus is looking at the people 
And obviously he's speaking spiritually, and he sees them as malnourished, without strength, and fainting and falling down, and half dead on the ground. And he says, ah, they're not being taken care of. They're like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherd's not taking care of them. The shepherd is not doing his job of taking care of the sheep, and they're famished. Turn with me to chapter 15 of Matthew. And verse 32, where the same Greek word is used, I think this gives a marvelous parallel between the physical and the spiritual. Between the compassion of Jesus when he looks at us in our physical need and his compassion in our spiritual need. 1532. And brothers and sisters, if you can take anything away this morning, take this away. Verse 32. Jesus called his disciples unto them, unto him, and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I don't want to send them away fasting, lest they faint, same Greek word, in the way. So he says, I have compassion for these people. They're really hungry. They've been with me three days, and if I send them away, they're gonna just they're gonna faint without strength on the way. They're gonna just collapse they don't have any strength and I get compassion for them and it's this same picture which is here in the physical and there being applied in the spiritual Jesus looks upon this multitude which probably they're not starving at the, at the point in Matthew 9 and he looks upon them and says they're fainting they're collapsing spiritually they don't have bread to eat they don't have food to eat they're not nourished the Pharisees their teachers aren't feeding them the Pharisees teach them about the existence of God the Pharisees teach them about the law of God and the kingdom of God and that in order to enter the kingdom of God you need to work and be like them this doesn't nourish them they're hungry they don't know God they need the bread of life they're spiritually fainting and I have compassion on them the shepherds aren't doing their job as we've already seen earlier in the chapter when Jesus was sitting with the sick, the ones who didn't know God, he wasn't speaking physically there. They were physically well sinners, but they were spiritually sick. They didn't know God. They didn't know his grace and his mercy. And he's with them, eating with them. And the Pharisees say, why is he eating with sinners? They're bad shepherds. And Jesus is the good shepherd taking care of the sick. He says, go learn this, that God wants to have mercy. And he wants people to know him as a God of mercy. You are faint spiritually. You are not healthy spiritually. You are sick spiritually and ready to perish spiritually if you have not eaten the bread of life. If your sins are not forgiven through believing in Jesus Christ and coming to understand the love and the mercy of God for you in Christ, you are sick and fainting spiritually. And every Christian who has believed the good news and who has trusted in Jesus Christ and has received the forgiveness of sins and knows that God is love, can tell you that you should taste and see for the Lord is good, right? That we have eaten and we are full and satisfied with him. He has showed us his love. This is the message of the good news of the kingdom. For God so loved the world, this sick, starving world in sin, in ignorance and darkness, that he gave his only begotten son. That son was lifted up on a cross 2,000 years ago because of our sins. We had sinned. We had disobeyed. We had broken the law, and the law condemned us, and we were unclean. 
But God lifted up his son up on a cross in payment for our sins. Jesus died the penalty that we deserved was death. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven and come to understand who God is. By believing in Jesus Christ, we come to know God and are forgiven of our sins. We come to eat the bread of life. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You're ready to perish. You're dying. What he meant by that was believing in his cross and believing in his death. Do you believe this morning? Have you eaten this morning? Have you been nourished by Jesus Christ and the good news and what he's done for you? Or are you still starving and fainting, perishing in this world without knowing God and having the assurance of his love? Because he died, we may live. And as we sang this morning, the cross is the power of God to overcome all sin, death, and the law. So brothers and sisters, let's learn from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus Christ, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, We see not only the indomitable power of God, that means the unstoppable power of God, the infinite potential of the power of God, but also in Christ, the predominant love of God. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel that you are able to save sinners to raise the dead, to take the curse for us so that we might be blessed, a human impossibility. And Lord, we thank you for showing us this truth in your Son who came full of grace and truth. And Lord, help us to see that Christianity is about believing what is humanly impossible and putting our faith and our hope in you and not in what we may do you have done. If there's anyone here who's not a Christian, who's not been forgiven of their sins, and who's not tasted and eaten of the bread of life, may they do that this morning. May they not delay and see that there's no wait. They don't need to hesitate like like the woman. Help us to see your compassionate heart revealed on every page of the New Testament and that climaxes in your death for our sins. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray.